beautiful. Mark 16, 1 to 8, and it says this. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Siloam, bought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll the stone away, for, uh, for, uh, stone away from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You see Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of God. All right, we're going to open up the final part of the Gospel of Mark. And, um, and really, fittingly, this is the, the climax of the Gospel of Mark. And so I'm looking forward to getting stuck into this. Thank you for joining us online. Thanks, everyone, for being here in the building, even though it feels like, like when I used to teach and I had a naughty class and you split everyone up so they can't talk to each other. It feels a little bit like that. But it's, um, it's great in whatever form we're able to, to be able to meet together. And if you're tuning in or here and you really wouldn't call yourself religious or you're someone who actually says, yeah, I follow Jesus and it's, um, following him is something that defines your life, any which way you cut it, this passage is a passage worth taking significant notice of. And my, probably my one worry for this talk in particular is that if you are someone who has followed Jesus for any amount of time, my concern is that you would be too familiar with this story. Every week you're going to hear Jesus died for your sins, rose again. It's a, it's a, a story that um, is extraordinary and yet you can get so familiar with it that it loses its impact. And really I can't communicate just with words how significant the resurrection is. And so in a moment I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit would attend power to these words so that you might feel the spiritual gravity of what's going on here. Because this isn't just any other story in history. I want to put to you, and I just, I'd love for you to try and wrap your mind around just how unprecedented the story is that we're about to read here this afternoon. And that word gets thrown about a lot. Even during a pandemic, you hear the word unprecedented. I was mildly disappointed early on to find out that when people were talking about how unprecedented it was, that the world had had a pandemic before and that it was probably worse than this one. And so it kind of devalues the word. The word unprecedented literally means something that has no precedent, something that has happened that is genuinely unique, like nothing else before it has happened like it. And when I say the resurrection of Jesus is unprecedented, I mean it literally. And I mean that literally, not how people use the word literally, which literally doesn't mean that. I mean it is literally unprecedented, capital U, unprecedented. Nothing in history has happened like this before or since. This is not an ordinary event. And when I say that as well, I'm not saying, you know, as a follower of Jesus, this event means a lot to me. I mean, it is actually unprecedented, historically so. And so I'm going to pray that as we open up God's word, he would open up our hearts to see the gravity of this. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are too often familiar and comfortable and complacent with things with which we should not be complacent, with realities that are unique and have grave significance, 
and yet we treat them as trivial or as ordinary. Father, we pray that as we open up Mark 15 and 16, that we would see how extraordinary it is that the Son of God should die and rise again. That these are extraordinary claims that have extraordinary implications for us and for anyone who would hold this to be true. And Father, we thank you that you tell this story in history so that it's verifiable, so that these aren't just sentimental stories, but actual fact and history and something that we could hang our lives upon. And so, Father, we pray that you would strike us anew this afternoon with the gravity of your word. Amen. Let me tell you a story to kind of just give you some context to what we're dealing with here in Mark 15 and 16. Imagine this. Imagine you're holidaying in New South Wales, in a part of New South Wales you wouldn't normally hang out with, but because the rest of the world is shut down, you're like, fine. And so you go to some backwater town, and you get a cheap rental, and you're there enjoying the scenery and whatever it is. But one afternoon, you start to feel like you've got a bit of a headache. You didn't plan ahead, so you don't have any Panadol. So you go, I'm just going to pop down to the shops, to the pharmacy, to pick up some Panadol, and then I'll be back. You get down there, you go into the chemist, you get your stuff, you go out, you're starting to feel a little bit worse. So just while you're at the driver's, in the driver's seat, you kind of just rest your head, close your eyes, rest your head on the steering wheel just to recoup a little bit. And you, you do that for what seems to be a very short amount of time. But when you get up and open your eyes, the car park is completely cleared out and there's no one anywhere. You go back into the chemist, no one's in there. The doors are opening and shutting, but no one's around. You go back to your accommodation, no one's there. There's not a car on the road. There's not a person within earshot. Now, if that happened to you, here's what you wouldn't do. You wouldn't just go, well, is what it is. You know, you wouldn't say, it'd be like that sometimes, and then just go and watch whatever's on TV. You wouldn't just strap in for the rest of your weekend and just say, well, it'll probably work itself out. You would know that populations don't clear out in that amount of time. Or if you were unconscious for the amount of time it would have taken for that many people to, to, to disappear, that you were unconscious for an extraordinary amount of time, whatever it is, you would look for an explanation. Because you know from your experience that you don't just put your head on the wheel for a moment, open your eyes, and suddenly everyone's gone. There's a big hole in the middle of the story that needs explaining. Something happened. Something very significant happened between those two events. Some historians would put it this way about the first century, that there is a giant hole in the story of it. Before the hole, there was a small group, a small Jewish movement that followed a leader who only had a ministry for three years. And then something happened, and then on the other side of it, it blew up to the point where it was across the entire Roman Empire to the point where Christianity was such a movement that it was already being suppressed by the state less than 30 years after Jesus died. And from there, it continued to blow up all across the world. And the reason we're here and talking about it now is because it has not stopped growing. I want to make clear to you that there is not a single major world religion that has started in this fashion. Islam did not start this way. Buddhism did not start this way. Hinduism did not start this way. Christianity, the origin story of Christianity, is absolutely unprecedented. There has been no event like it before and none since. What happened in the first century was extraordinary. And what we're going to read in the book of Mark is the Bible's explanation of what happened to cause this sudden explosion, to fill in the hole in the middle of the story of the first century. 
Because whether you are Christian or consider yourself religious or secular, the facts about the first century are objective. There was this small, tiny movement, and it exploded across Europe like nothing has before or since. And the explanation that the Bible offers is that there was a resurrection to explain it. And so we're going to dig into this story, but just before we get there, we need to just cover a little bit of context about what happened. Last week, if you are with us, you know that Jesus was put on a mock trial. He was put up on charges because a group of religious leaders wanted him to die, and they needed him to be convicted of something significant enough that he could be put to death, but they didn't have anything, so they made it up. And I just want you to imagine for a moment what it would be like to stand there on a trial when false charges are being brought against you. Just try and think about this. Have you ever just been misrepresented by someone else? That they have said about your intentions or about what you did really the wrong thing and spread it among other people? You feel the injustice of that, right? Well, how about you take it a step further? Have you ever been accused of something illegal that would have legal ramifications for you that you did not do? Just imagine how angry you would be there, sitting there at a trial, as people bring witnesses and charges against you for something that did not happen. Imagine how angry you would be and how fearful of your future and the implications that there will be for you if, if someone believes this to be true. We just consider Jesus on trial there, hearing all of these charges coming against him, knowing they're completely false knowing that no one has ever loved as clearly as he has before in history, and yet he's been brought up on this false trial. But it's actually one step worse than that. You add in the dynamic that actually Jesus is not just a regular human who's innocent on trial. He's come here to rescue the very type of people who are putting him on trial. So think of it like this. Have you ever heard of a a story of paramedics who've rushed to help someone and then been assaulted? It's like it makes you mad, doesn't it? To think like this person is putting their life on the line to help you and you're going to then, you're going to harm them. It makes you mad. And yet this is exactly what's happening. Jesus is on a false trial, falsely accused, and he is here to help the people who are accusing him. You just got to feel the injustice of what's going on. And eventually he's convicted to be crucified and killed, the worst possible way to die at that time. And then we pick up the story in Mark 15, 16 to 20. It says this, The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again, they struck him on the head and with the staff, and they spat on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, They took off the purple robe and put his clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. So these soldiers are hard men. Just think, their only job, day in and day out, is to kill people. They torture, they beat, and then they crucify, and they do it again. They don't have any other job job prospects. There wasn't a seek.com that they could go on. What you did for, for a job is what you would do for a lifetime, and probably it's what your father did and your father's father. These are hard men. And they have Jesus, and they decide they're going to have some fun. They start mocking him. They hear that he's claimed that he was the king of the Jews, so they give him a mock crown, and they put it on his head and press it into him until he bleeds. They put a a purple robe on him because that's a royal color, and they bow down to him, and they say, Hail, king of the Jews. 
And they, they're high-fiving each other and having a great time mocking him. Have you ever been mocked to your face? The feeling of being mocked can send adrenaline through you like white lightning. It can make you, the humiliation, the anger, it can make you feel so mad. Now just imagine being Jesus here, fully able to destroy the ones who are mocking you and bearing it because you're doing your Father's will. He takes it. Like a good soldier, he keeps his eye on the mission. He's going to the cross and he bears the mocking and the humiliation as they beat and torture. But even from there, it gets worse. Look what it says in Mark 15, 21 to 32. There's a certain man from Cyrene, Simon. Actually, does anyone have the aircon thing? Would someone mind just turning that one off? I'm getting like it's a heat wave up here. <clears throat> but a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. And the written notice of the charge against him read, King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, come down on the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He's saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. A man is named here, Simon of Cyrus, with sons Alexander and Rufus, presumably because those reading the early texts of Mark maybe knew them that perhaps these were prominent men in the early church, or perhaps it's just because it's a historical detail that Mark recollects. Any which way, he's in the text, and he carries the cross for Jesus because Jesus is so running out of life that he cannot bear his own cross. I don't know if you've ever been that injured that you are, your vision is blacking out, that you can barely carry your own weight because the blood loss is so heavy. I imagine very few people in this room have experienced being this close to death. And all the while, people heaping insults on him and mocking him. And when he gets to the place where he's to be crucified, called the place of the skull, because no one comes back alive from this place, they crucify him. They nail his wrists and his feet to the cross, and they put him up for public ridicule. And the insults keep coming. At this point, it's doubtful whether or not Jesus had enough life left in him to have actually heard the insults, but someone heard them and has recorded them here for us. They're saying to him, he claims he could destroy the temple and rebuild it. Look at him now. Others are saying, without any irony, saying he's saved others, but he can't save himself, not realizing that in order to save them, he will not save himself. He's mocked. All of his life has been building to this moment, and he is nearly done. And look what happens in his final moments. In Mark 15, it says, At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. 
Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. At midday, even creation gets what's going on. The whole sky grows dark. There's a sense of ominous, it's doom. The the, the creation is mourning its maker. But even though nature itself understands what's going on, the very people standing there don't get it. Jesus cries out, Elo, Elo, Lava Sabachthani, one of the most prominent psalms in the Bible in the Old Testament, something his people should have known was a quote about God's king and saviour being abandoned to death. And instead, someone mishears him and says, I think he's trying to call Elijah or something. They miss it completely. But Jesus is crying something out from one of his favorite psalms, the cry they call it of dereliction, the cry of being completely forsaken. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No one has experienced an abandonment like Jesus did in this moment. Just recently, I was watching, every now and then you get 99 cent documentaries come up on Apple, whatever it is. And, um, and I love a good docker. I can get into anything. But recently there was one on Apollo 11, so the first moon landing and safe return. Sorry to spoil it for you, but it was over 50 years ago if you didn't get up on it. But um, one of the incredible things in it, I mean, there's, there's so many incredible things about it. I mean, one of the most extraordinary is that they basically just slung a rocket, like with no propulsion, they just slung it at 30,000 miles at the moon's orbit and calculated that it would be able to catch it in orbit and then go, it's unbelievable. But once they get into the, into the orbit of the moon, when, when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin head down to the surface, and then the other guy, poor bloke, uh, his name is Michael Collins, by the way, he had to stay orbiting the moon so that when they came up from the moon landing, they could redock and then be slung back to Earth. But there's one part of the orbit, when he heads around to the dark side of the moon, where he was going to lose communication with Houston for about 45 minutes. And at that point, he's by himself. And not only that, that the others are on the other side of the moon, which means he's at least 5,500 kilometers from any living thing. And they said of him that at that point, he was the loneliest person who has ever existed. It's not possible on planet Earth to get 5,500 kilometers from any living thing. It's probably not quite possible to get 5,500 kilometers from any human, let alone any living thing. At that point, he was as alone as a person gets. And when he came back to Earth, people asked him what he was thinking about, but it was very underwhelming. He said he was thinking about, like, the lab rats that they were going to use to check if they had pathogens when they got home. It was something super nerdy, right? Everyone thought it was, like, this profound sort of... He probably had this existential crisis. He didn't. He was just very focused, right? But it's crazy to think, you're like, man, that, that guy was as alone as alone could be. If he got into trouble at that point, he had no way to communicate with Houston. If he, if he fell out of the moon's orbit, it, like that would have been it. He was just off into space forever. No, one, no way to rescue him. Do you know, even with that experience, he did not experience the level of abandonment that Jesus did on the cross. Because Jesus went there to bear the wrath of God for our sin. Now, he was abandoned physically by friend and family, by justice, 
But he cries out because he is about to be abandoned to death by his heavenly Father. And he did it for you and I. It was for no arbitrary reason. And with a loud shout, he breathes his last, and that's it. He is done. It is finished. Sin is paid for, and Jesus is abandoned to death that we might find life. And the crazy thing is, none of his own people get it. They mishear him. They misunderstand him. But did you see the one person who got it? Out of everyone who's there in the crowd, who is the least likely person to get it? The centurion, the head of these hardened soldiers. Did you see what he said? I mean, think about the fact that he would see executions every single day. He would see people. It's not his first execution for the day, let alone the week. But he sees Jesus die, and there's whatever it is about the way that Jesus carried himself and the death he died, he looks at him and he says, this was the Son of God. This is not like any other death I've ever witnessed. This, there's something different about this Jesus. And whether he just said it to himself and then told people later, or whether someone, a witness within earshot, heard it, it's recorded for us here in the book of Mark. At the moment Jesus cries out his last breath, the soldier says, this is the Son of God. Surely this is the Son of God. But from there, the mood darkens. In Mark 15, 42... We read that some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also here. It was preparation day, that is the day before Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of the rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So we see here... That Joseph, who's a member of the Jewish council, this is the group of religious leaders who have just successfully crucified their enemy, Jesus, the one they wanted to die, the one who'd been humiliating them over and over again, the one that they decided had to go. He risks his reputation and his life by going to Pilate and saying, I'll take Jesus' body and I'll bury it in a tomb that I own. And it's recorded here that he did it. But when he goes to ask Pilate, did you notice what Pilate said? He was surprised that Jesus had already died. Crucifixion took a long time, sometimes days, and Jesus was already dead. So he calls the centurion, presumably the same centurion that has just said, this is the son of God, and checks with him, is he dead? Because he's a Roman executioner, he's pretty good at his job. He can tell when someone's dead, and he confirms it. He says, yes, Jesus is gone. So he gives the body to Joseph. They put it in a tomb, and they seal it with a tomb. Jesus is dead. I want you to feel what his followers would have been feeling at this moment. Just think, they've only followed this guy for three years. They thought he was going to change the world completely. They've seen him heal the sick, feed the 5,000, walk on water. They're thinking, what is this guy going to do? And then they see him arrested and put on trial. And they're probably thinking, he's going to get his way out of this one. Jesus, Jesus pulled a rabbit out of the hat before. There's no way he's going to die. He's the guy. He's going to do something here. 
And then as it gets closer and closer, they're thinking, surely at this point he's going to pull something out, and then he dies. He doesn't. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, he's crucified, he breathes his last, and he dies. And everyone there following him must be crushed. They've left their families, their work, they've followed Jesus and thought, this is the guy who's going to change the world, and instead, he's dead and buried in a tomb. It's done. But as they say, it's darkest before the dawn, and at the darkest moment in the Gospel of Mark, just then, the dawn appears. Look at Mark 16, 1 to 8. It says, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they may go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, Who's going to roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb... They saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb, and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. So Mary and Mary and Salome go to the tomb on Sunday morning because they're expecting, just like we do today, that if someone is dead on Friday, they'll be dead on Sunday and they're going to put spices on his body and they're talking about who's going to actually open up the tomb and when they get there, it's open. And of course, that's quite concerning and so they're alarmed. What's even more concerning is that there's a guy dressed all in white who's like, is he still out from partying the night before at a white party or something? And so he just, he just reassures them don't be alarmed. I'm not crazy. And he says to them, why are you really looking for Jesus here? He's already risen. He's gone ahead of you to Galilee. He told you he was going to do it, and now he's done it, and he's way ahead of you. And the gospel finishes with the women, it says, bewildered, they're trembling, so they're physically shaking, and they're speechless. And that's where the gospel of Mark ends. Now, if you have your Bible with you, you might notice that there's a whole other section after this in italics. And the reason it's in italics is because it probably wasn't written by Mark. That someone later on has added on a text and, and it confirms that we have many early and original texts that show us that actually the original one ended at sentence 8. But it seems like someone later on couldn't bear that ending and so decided to kind of fix it up. Because it is a strange ending, isn't it? It's an unsatisfying end. There's just someone saying, Jesus is risen, and then the only witnesses are terrified, bewildered, and speechless. It's, kind of a, it's like a yawn interrupted or a sneeze that you can't finish it's, or, or a, a beautiful composition that finishes on an imperfect note. It just leaves you feeling, oh, what just happened? We were looking at it in our group this week, and one of the members um, in my small group, my missional community, was saying, as, a, as I asked the question, what do you think about the ending? He just said, I love it. That's the most indie ending ever. Isn't that? I mean, John and, John and Luke and Matthew are so mainstream, but Mark is like, he's really edgy, and he's cut this thing off short. But the question is, why would he do this? Because the more I've looked at this ending, the more I love it. I love it. It's such a great way to end the gospel. It's such a, a note that invites you into the story. 
Because what Mark is doing by finishing it so quickly, and the whole gospel is written in the same manner. It's very short, sharp, just right on to things. And he finishes on this note to kind of jar you out of the story. And it's an invitation to investigate. If you're someone who's skeptical about the claim of the resurrection, he's saying, well, what do you think happened? Because for a first century reader, they would have heard about this Christianity exploding everywhere. And they read this story and really Mark is saying to you, what do you think happened after this? In fact, all the people are still alive. Go and speak to them yourself. It's an invitation to investigate. And so if you're listening in online, if you're here and unconvinced about the resurrection, Mark is inviting you, investigate. Ask your own questions. What better explains what happened before and after the resurrection than the resurrection? Let me give you three things to consider. The first is this. We know as a historical fact that a large amount of people converted to Christianity and were willing to die for their convictions in the first century almost overnight. The groups of people who were not just Jewish but of all nations threw away their own religions, their traditions, their even family origins, and followed Christianity and followed Jesus almost overnight. Do you know that worldviews en masse change very slowly? If the civil rights movement in America has taught us anything, it's that deeply held beliefs take a long time to shift, don't they? Cultures don't just change their mind overnight en masse. It takes a long time for deeply held beliefs to change. And yet in the first century, something unprecedented happened. A massive group of people mobilized and moved throughout the empire like that. They shifted radically to the point where the movement was so huge that it was already being suppressed by AD 60 and beyond. What else would explain such a radical shift except an extraordinary event like someone actually rose from the dead? But the second one is this. If your thought is, well, maybe it was a mass hallucination. All these people wanted Jesus to be alive, but he wasn't alive, so they just kind of hoped he was, and then they all kind of wound each other up and were like, maybe he's alive. The problem is that when it comes to like something like that, and the only equivalent would be, say, like a, a, a group of people who said they saw a UFO. When, when, when people look at mass hallucinations one of the things they're looking for is what's called confirmation bias. That is, if a group of people are looking for something, it's likely that they're going to bias towards having found it. So if a bunch of people are conspiracy theorists, wear foil helmets and talk about UFOs, and they all go out to the desert together one night and take LSD and then say they saw a UFO, there's a good chance that all of them are going to say, yeah, we saw a UFO. There's a lot of confirmation bias there. The problem with Christianity was it was not what anyone was looking for. The Jews didn't believe that people were going to rise from the dead during this lifetime. They believed in life after death, but not in this lifetime. The Greek-influenced culture thought that physical humanity was bad, the spirit is good, the body is bad. So when they envisioned a kind of heaven, they envisioned a disembodied kind of heaven where you're floating in the clouds. They weren't looking for this kind of earthly resurrection. So what would convince a large group of people that weren't looking for this kind of thing, that this was the actual truth, unless Jesus really rose from the dead and there were witnesses to it. But the third one is this. Any movement that doesn't achieve power in the lifetime of the leader dies when the leader dies. Movements, if they rise up and the leader is killed, tend to flatten out, especially if they're only three years old like this was. If the leader can manage to achieve power and then consolidate power, 
then they can control their legacy from then on. They can die and there are successions and so on and so on. But if they don't achieve power, inevitably the, lead, the movement dies out when the leader dies. So why is it that a movement that was only three years old, where the leader died so suddenly and so awfully and so drastically, why would it explode after he died unless there was something else extraordinary that happened to explain it? One historian says, If we are to speak about the early church, we must describe something for which there was no precedent and of which there remains no subsequent example. In order to explain an unprecedented effect, you need an unprecedented cause. What caused the explosion of Christianity if it was not the resurrection of Jesus? There is a resurrection-shaped hole in the first century, and I defy you to find another explanation because others have. I'd encourage you, if you're skeptical about it, to look into it for yourself because these are historical facts that are verifiable that you can investigate for yourself. But if you are convinced, if you're someone who would say, I'm a follower of Jesus, I believe that this is the truth, then Mark's ending is inviting you into the story, isn't it? Think about what these kind of endings do for you when you hear them. If you've ever seen a movie with an unsatisfying ending, it draws you into the story to where you want to finish it. Try and think of like, I'm trying to think of like a story that as many people as possible would know. Like, imagine like Lord of the Rings, and when he's about to drop the ring in the whatever, nerd volcano or something, I don't know, what's it called, but like the Mordor, if the movie stopped just there, it would make you want to finish the story, wouldn't it? If the movie paused at that moment, it would make you want to do it. It's like in in romantic comedies, they always have the scenario where the two people like each other, but they kind of miss the opportunity to say it or whatever, and it makes you want to get into the story and grab them by the scruff and just say, you both like each other, do something about it, (laughs) right? That kind of tension invites you into a story. And the tension here at the end of the book of Mark, finishing with just three followers, witnessing the resurrection and then saying nothing about it, is inviting you to say, what would you do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do about it? That's the challenge that Mark is leaving you with. If the resurrection is not just something that Christians are sentimental about, or it's not just something that's not really true, but we just it's something we say to ourselves to make ourselves feel good, if it's actual historical fact, if it's the guarantee of life everlasting, then Mark is saying, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Or more specifically, unlike the end of the story, who are you going to tell about it? Who are you going to tell? Here's a a very simple way to share the gospel to finish with. One of the the unexpected upsides of um, having to lock down things for church and put things up online is that it means that people can check it out in a pretty non-confronting way. Over this next series, we're going to be looking at, at four things that everyone experiences. Apathy, passivity, something and something. What are the others? I can't remember. I wrote the brief for it and I can't remember. But they're going to be so good. But next week we kick off with apathy, the sense that I feel like most people have that everything's just a bit meh. Work is meh, life is a bit whatever. We just feel worn down and a bit whatever. And you know what? When you're a kid, it doesn't take much to make you say, wow. But as you get older, it takes a lot more. And I would argue, I think the Bible would argue, that eventually only something as grand and as shocking and dangerous and glorious as God can be enough for a grown adult to say wow for the rest of their life. That's what we're going to be opening up next week. And one of the easiest things you can do is to share the service, and it just puts it out there. 
Or to go one step further, I've got a few mates that I'm going to invite to check it out because I think that they, they love engaging with these kind of ideas. People are, uh, everyone's getting existential at the moment, so it's a great chance to, to really engage with deep things and to say, why don't you check it out? This is how Jesus deals with apathy. Or even better yet, maybe even share, there's a podcast on the resurrection that I'll put up on the group that you can share around. If you want to say to, if you want to listen to it yourself and say to someone, what do you think about this? Is this do, you, do you think this is good history or just Christians being sentimental about something? Mark is saying at the end of this gospel, Jesus rose from the dead. What are you going to do about it? Because it is amazing truth. Let me finish with a, a, a quote from Joni Erickson Tata, a follower of Jesus who all her life has suffered with disability. And she says this, I, with shriveled bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives to someone who is spinal cord injured like me? But the resurrection is not just hope for the physically broken. It's for anyone broken by their own sin or the sin of others or anyone just crying out, isn't there more in this life? It is hope for everyone. And Mark is saying, who are you going to tell? I'm going to pray for us. Father God, we thank you that you are the greatest storyteller that has ever been that you have written the story of history and put at the very center of it your son Jesus, the one whom you sent as a sacrifice for our sin, to die, to bear the wrath of God, and to rise again to indestructible life, that all who believe in him may have life everlasting. And Father, we pray that you would embolden us, that we, though we feel much like the first witnesses, feel trembling and fearful, that you would empower us just as you did them to be bold, to know and to hold on to the truth of the gospel and to share the hope of the gospel with all who need it. And Father, we pray that you would do this, that you might be glorified in your people. We pray this for the sake of your holy name. Amen.